Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm John Perry. I'm Ted Cooper. And today on Review the Future, we are talking about the book Autonomous by Annalee Newitz. This is a newer sci-fi book that came out in 2017. We're going to use this book kind of as a launching pad to get into different kinds of technological issues that we want to discuss. So if you haven't read the book, uh, don't worry. We're going to try to give you enough context to enjoy this episode. Uh, but if you have read the book, I think you'll find this interesting, obviously, as well. To set the scene, this is a book that's set a little more than 100 years in the future, specifically the year 2144. And it's got two major plot lines. The A plot is this pirate named Jack Chen, a, a female Asian-Canadian medicine pirate who basically uh, makes pirate copies of patented drugs from like a mobile submarine and Robin Hoods them around the world. And then the B plot is about uh, this robot paladin and his military commando boss, Eliash, and they have sort of a romance, essentially. And it's one of these like classic robot waking up stories, right? Where the yes. robot sort of like discovers, you know, what it is to be a, a person, a person that can love <laughs> and so on. Right, right. Um, the book's called Autonomous, and it's very concerned with like the issue of autonomy in the sense of controlling your own actions, as well as the the idea of autonomy, like having freedoms. Yeah. So let's talk about like what the general world is like. It's not very different from today, but there are some choices, some clear choices that have been made about things that are different, right? There's some pretty dystopian elements of it. Yeah. I guess something I should point out right away is that there's a certain amount of global governance happening at this point. One of the villains of the story is what's abbreviated as the IPC or the International Property Coalition, which is some sort of transnational organization that very aggressively enforces intellectual property rights around the world. Right, Um, right. They seem to operate in this free trade zone that's like a lot of what we would call the West. Yeah, and so obviously the free trade zone is is another example. And then there's, contrasting to that, there's also an African federation. A certain amount of the story takes place in Africa. Right, right. Um, And an Asian union, I think, too, is like Asian sphere of influence as well. So the the implication is that we've you know somewhat gotten into more of like a like a, a world government governance mode right as opposed to like small nations right. in this future. It's conglomerated. It's not full world, but it's like there's three or four big powers rather than you know uh, 170 countries or whatever we have now. Well, I wasn't sure actually about whether the IPC also operated in things aside from the free trade zone. Um, I'm not sure if that was even conclusively. Oh yeah, answered. I'm not sure either because I now I don't remember whether the whether it was considered African Federation when they're in Morocco and they definitely operate there. Although maybe that's like you know covert ops. But yeah, there are there's been incredible advances in biotech. I, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, this is a story that is treating biotech much the way that digital technologies are treated today. Right, that seems to be strongly the analogy. To the point that there's even one of the sort of like biotech hacker people uses the phrase, you know, sequence wants to be free or something, which is, of course, a a direct reference to like information wanting to be free when we're talking about uh, traditional digital technology. Right. And you've got a lot of the same things that in, in biotech that, you know, we see today where you've got democratized power, right? It's pretty easy for people, it seems like, to set up their own little labs and do experiments and hack together these pirate drugs. Uh, But at the same time, you've got these very strong intellectual property interests that want to crack down on those pirates. And you've also got sort of a startup industry and little hubs of innovation, like areas around the world uh, that uh, where people are trying to to make it and and get rich by like starting up new new biotech firms to, you know, generate patented drugs and, and other things. So, um, it's it's a lot like today, but with biotech instead of digital stuff. Yeah, although I do want to say one of the things I was sort of struck by in the biotech speculation in this was um, how much of it still felt like today's drugs. So it was like, yeah, they were developing drugs quicker and um, more effectively, but they still seemed like they were all one size fit all, you know, manufactured pills that people were swallowing. 
uh, and that have basically the same effect on everyone. They didn't seem to be genetically tailored to the recipient. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I, I just didn't, noticed there... that like it, it did seem like uh, a little bit just like an, a faster version of our current biotech. And it definitely is like an IP dystopia, I think, above all else. That seems to be like the worst thing in the world is how locked down the, the medical system is by, by yeah. property, which I believe politically, I obviously thought that was pretty cool. Um, yeah, it's kind of a, a capitalist nightmare in a lot of ways, because also we should talk about this. It's not just uh, property in the form of drugs and patents right. that's discussed, property in the form of people right? Uh, or persons, both the robot and human. Essentially, slavery is like a huge part of the book. Right. Um, and it's somewhat an analogized to the intellectual property concerns. Um, but yes, the, the, those aspects of this world seem particularly troubling, troubling and bad. Um, yeah. I, I think, you know, there's definitely maybe a little bit of a political bent to this. Uh, Annalie Newitz um, has been a policy analyst for the Electronic Frontier Foundation. That's so right. Probably tells you something of her politics. She also um, uh, runs a great podcast, by the way, with uh, Charlie Jane Anders called... Um, our opinions are correct. So if you guys uh, like science fiction podcasts and want more of them, that's one I listen to. I think it's really good. Oh, yeah. I recently checked that out. And that is a great podcast. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah. So that's sort of like, and, and I do want to talk more about the the details of the uh, the human slavery and robot slavery that happens in this, in this world as well. Yeah. Uh, in fact, let me just get into that now because this is something that if you're reading the book uh, from start to finish, like a lot of sci-fi books, you have to infer things and you don't really get the real just straight what's happening in this world until kind of late in this book. But, but eventually, um, I think it's, it's very late in the book um, when we get to see a, a city of, of free robots, robots that have been freed from slavery and are now fully autonomous, right. that we do get that info dump. And so I'm just going to kind of jump to that just so we can talk about what the rules of the world are. Because from our perspective, sort of, trying to connect this to today and, and whether we think the speculation is accurate or not um, or has something to say. Like, I think it's useful to just know how the world works. So sure. um, some of the things we find out is that robot kinetic intelligence sort of emerges in the 2050s. I'm not sure what that means, kinetic intelligence, but um, that's around the time we start getting robots. And there are robots in this world of all different shapes and sizes that seem totally human equivalent that are that are walking around um, and doing jobs and so on. And that's also around the time that the International Property Coalition supposedly started. And under IPC law, um, we find out that companies are allowed to offset the cost of building their robots, because robots are super expensive to build, right. which is another thing I want to come back to, but we'll talk about that later. Um, they're allowed to offset that cost by retaining ownership of the robot for up to 10 years. Um, so essentially those robots are born as slaves, but they can you know, work their way out of slavery 10 years later, although apparently that's not always followed. <laughs> apparently that rule is broken right. uh, occasionally. So it's similar to the old uh, rules of indenture, uh, and it is in fact called indenture in the book. I think she's making that analogy directly. I, I, I'm using slavery and the book doesn't ever use that term, but it very much is slavery and that, yeah. but yes, indenture technically is the, is the legal term here. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I mean, the other thing that that's reminiscent of, um, is the arguments for patents, right? Right. Which is also relevant to the story because that's of course the argument for patents is that you need to offset the cost of. Uh, designing a drug by retaining ownership of that drug for up to X number of years. Right. It's um, a monopoly, right? I mean, obviously, a mon you know, slavery is a monopoly, right? I guess. On some, <laughs> I guess, On yeah. some really dry level. I mean, it's kind of terrible to say. But, that you know, on some level, it is that. And, yeah, the book makes that clear in a kind of structural way that is pretty cool. But it's a little bit weird because in the case of drugs, the argument is, well, you want those drugs to exist because for the good of us all. Right. So we need to incentivize that by giving out the monopoly. Whereas the cost of building robots, do we need the robots to exist for the good of us all? Well, I mean, not necessarily. It's not. I clear. mean, I guess. Right. I mean, and just you just assume maybe you just assume like more persons on the planet is better. Uh, but I don't. That doesn't seem like an argument anyone's making. So, or more but labor anyways, capability, because right, because a robot can do some kind of work, I guess. So they have some value. 
to the sure, society on that level. I guess after those 10 years, they're going to go just take general jobs in the economy and be helpful, maybe. That's right. the, the thinking. Right. Um, that but even when they're like, working for the company for profit, they're still doing some work that's probably beneficial to society at large. I think you can make some assumptions about that. Uh, okay. I, I, I mean, look, it's not, it's, it is a little weird. Com- uh, not that I think the drug companies have the best argument in the world either here, but uh, you know, it is one way to, I guess, subsidize the making of robots. And I guess I can kind of buy that society thinks on the whole robots are better than no robots. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I think it makes some sense and I could see something similar happening um, where if we have robots and we want to treat them like persons, um, obviously, generally when people will build robots, they will want them to do specific tasks and we might feel like, okay, well, if they're going to build them, they should be able to do those tasks, but we can't, you know, in good conscience, if we're treating them like persons, um, allow them to remain in that servitude for, you know, for an unlimited amount of time. I guess I do find that a little bit strange, actually, because, I mean, that's the same logic as indenture. And I guess people believed in that in the past. But if you're okay with someone being a slave for a little while, (laughs) you know, but just not for too long, I don't know. That morally seems very slippery to me. If I think it's an actual being, then I'm, I'm not clear why it should be enslaved at all, you know? Sure. So maybe a more humane take is you can, uh, make robots of a certain intelligence level, but they, they have to be born free. Um, and I mean, you could just be strict about that. And if people need narrow tasks done, then they should design robots that aren't sentient to do those tasks. Exactly. Exactly. I feel like once you make something sentient, it's like, it's like a child, you have some responsibilities to it. And then, uh, maybe at a certain point, those responsibilities run out, but you can't make it do things really. (laughs) Um, but, but anyways, like yeah. th- th- this is the context in which we end up with human slavery because then as we learn, right. what happened historically in this world is that um, eventually uh, human rights are granted to these robots, right, that have human level or greater intelligence. So once robots gain human rights, well, now you have things that have human rights that are treated like humans that are being enslaved, like you were just pointing well, out. Well, they have the course, legal right to be sold, right? And it... it, it they end up extending this quote unquote legal right to people. Right. Isn't right. Instead of doing them. Well, yeah, exactly. Instead of doing the moral thing and saying, Oh, we're enslaving sentient beings. Let's get rid of that form of slavery. They just say, well, since we're already enslaving the robots and the robots have the same rights as people. Well, I guess that means now we can enslave the people. <laughs> right? right. So right. that's the, that's the sort of dystopian, place this goes where now people can be indentured. Now, the only distinction given in the book is that in the free trade zone, at least, and it's implied that it's different in the, uh, the African Federation yeah. or the Asian Union or one of those two places where it's, the rules are slightly different. But in the free trade zone, um, you cannot indenture a human child under the age of 16. They cannot be born indentured. Um, so it's something that happens later in their life, although a- apparently that rule is broken a lot as well. I mean, I already mentioned that there are places in the world where that rule is not followed. So if someone is, I think one of our major characters who's named Threezed, um, is someone. His name is Threezed, right? It's like three and the letter Z, which is Canadian for Z. Sure. I I always read it as Threezed. I'm pretty sure it's Threezed. I I could be wrong, but I, I think it's, it's the tattoo on him is like a three and a Z. So his name's Threezed because it's a Canadian novel where everything is sort of extra Canadian. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll, we'll go with, we'll go with 3Z. So, uh, yeah, 3Z, I, I believe was, um, indentured from a very young age outside of the free trade zone. Exactly. And he's raised uh, in like some kind of school for indentureds, which basically, uh, damages their minds to the point where they kind of become hustlers because, uh, that sort of the book says that's what happens to you when you're treated like that you know, at that age. Yeah, and then later he is sold uh, in to, uh, to an owner in the free trade zone. So he ends up in the free trade zone, and, and I believe when he's sold it's probably illegal because he's probably still under 16 at that point. But right. apparently, um, again, those rules get broken all the time, 
and Las Vegas is the center of uh, human trafficking in this future. Right. Which makes a certain um, amount of sense. Uh, there's a kind of vague thing in the book where like most of the action takes place in Canada and um, it it's never explicitly said, but I think there's like a kind of climate change assumption. That's I believe so. It like, seems like the economic centers are different. Yeah, they all seem to be like a little north of where they are now and, and there's not a lot of mention of Kansas. Like anywhere that's like would be desert if... Uh, uh, climate change uh, happens as as scheduled uh, seems to be like ignored in the book. Yeah, one. Well, I I think it's also sort of implied that biotech is uh, leading to a lot of new agriculture techniques, which yep. is probably making up for some of the like traditional farming and ag- agriculture that's did, been displaced as a result of global right. warming. Right. I think there. Are, yeah, I don't remember exactly, but there are some mentions of new agriculture that seem like they're doing vertical farms and things like that. Like the kinds of things you'd expect engineering to try to get around climate change issues. Okay, so you mentioned the A plot line where we have uh, Judith Chen, often called Jack in the story. Yeah, because she's a pirate, uh, get it? Yeah, because she's a pirate. And uh, she has like a history of being a pirate and being a member of this organization, uh, The Bilious Pills. Right, there's a lot uh, of just funny names for stuff in this. A plus for The Bilious pull- Pills. Yeah, and, and at one point she was part of academia. She was sort of like uh, more of a sort of an upstanding citizen on, on the track to being, uh, you know, a biomedical researcher of some kind. Uh, but now she's totally gone rogue after having been in, in prison for a little while and getting involved in this whole piracy movement. And she's just straight up, like you said, roaming the Arctic in a submarine, uh, playing Robin Hood and, and giving people... Well, actually, she's the way the Robin Hood thing works is she pirates you know, drugs that are uh, corporate drugs that are maybe uh, not super useful, uh, like recreational type things and, and or just recreational drugs. Um, she, she sells those to make income to then, you know, sort of give dr- like necessary life-saving drugs to people at a, you know, either no cost or a cost that they can afford. Um, so she's, to some extent, she's, you know, using seedier drugs to finance giving out the the life-saving drugs. Right. That was your understanding too, right? Right, yeah, which is already a pretty compromised position, actually. And some of the uh, online reviews that I read noted that. Like, I like that kind of lack of purity because that makes her seem scrappy and, like, she's down on her luck and doing things that she doesn't necessarily want to do. I think from a story perspective, I like that. But, yeah, it's correct that she's not like a... Total Robin Hood. Yeah. There's a drug called uh, Zacuity. Yeah, Zacuity. I liked that name too. Um, which is not fully on the market at the time that the story starts. Yeah, it's sort of in um, beta trials or something. It's like some people at some companies are using it, but it's not totally available. Yeah, and it's a total smart drug gone wrong situation um, because basically what it does is it makes you really, really enjoy whatever work you're doing at that moment. But it's also extremely addictive, like more addictive than any substance we have today. So you become extremely addicted to whatever work you're doing. So if your work is, you know, working at like a... uh, you know, a dry cleaning place, then you're going to become addicted to dry cleaning. Right. Or if you're like, the opening job is image like, is like a girl doing homework to death, basically, right? Like a, a yeah, they become so addicted. She's that they just, just doing don't her eat. homework and doing her homework, and they take away the papers, and she's still writing, and they give her drugs to calm her down, and she's still writing, and she just, you know, basically does her homework until she dies. And this kind of like, you know, rat on a uh, on a wheel kind of thing has been done before with drugs i mean uh calls to mind infinite jest actually it calls to mind infinite jest it calls to mind brain candy and you know one thing that i thought was interesting with the way they depicted this because this is the very first thing you read about in the book and i'm like skeptically reading it and i'm like "Uh oh the technology is going awry this is going to be there's going to be some you know hidden human element we didn't know about or something i'm just like ready for this disappointment there but i thought it was pretty good that the you know, Jack immediately realizes that the, the problem is like, oh, I didn't do any trials on this. Like, I rushed wait, this wait, thing wait, to do, market, do we even right? say that basically this is the drug, this is the sort of seedy drug that she's pirating? Because right. people, of course, want this drug. 
I mean, it's intended usage in the beta trials is like within corporations under like close supervision to like make employees work harder. But it also has, you know, recreational use because average people that have boring things to do really want this feeling that comes with this drug. Right. So that's what she's and selling. And nobody knows that it is so addictive too. They've, of they've, course not. They've yeah, yeah. portrayed it as being a harmless drug that just makes you like your work more, uh, which of course everybody would want if you had such a thing. But uh, it So she's turns horrified out to yeah, yeah, yeah. to realize that she's selling this thing that is causing this harm. Right. And uh, throughout the plot, you eventually realize that they actually knew all along that it was bad. So it's kind of like a Michael Clayton sort of scenario. The corporations The corporations knew. So actually, uh, Jack has not done anything wrong in her piracy. She pirated this drug perfectly. Um, It just was a faulty drug to begin with. And she didn't run any of her own trials uh, to test her batches because, you know, she was rushing it out to market. Uh, so I thought that was pretty good as far as they did a good job of explaining how a problem could happen while the technology, you know, worked as intended. Um, but this corporation just decided to lie and, uh, and then this individual ended up spreading, spreading it around. Uh, yeah. And her plot line is basically all about trying to right the wrong that she's unleashed on the world, uh, by, you know, selling this drug in large enough quantities to harm a lot of people. And of course, like the people that become addicted to this drug tend to do a lot of damage to people around them with their obsessive behavior. Um, so it's a pretty big epidemic. And so she's going out there to uh, try to make uh, some sort of cure for it and also to get the word out that this drug is is problematic and, uh, you know, sort of get the, the company that made it on the hook for it. Right. Once she um, realizes that every batch of the drug and not just her pirated batch are bad, then her, her goal kind of expands and she has to sort of whistleblow on this big company. Meanwhile, our villains who are the uh, intellectual property coalition are trying to track her down. And she has, she sort of befriend makes two key friends that I sort of think represent the major themes of the story. One we mentioned is this three Z who is a, a human being that was born indentured pretty much. Um, from a very young age, has basically been treated like a robot his whole life. Yeah, he's essentially uh, like a sex slave. Is like I think the easiest way to think about. What that's been a, that. It sounds like that's been a a large part of the work he's been asked to do. Also, yeah. like repairing uh, uh, motors or something. Yeah. Um, and then uh, her other sort of ally that she teams up with is is in, in many ways the exact opposite. It's a robot, a rare robot that was actually born autonomous because most robots are born indentured. Um, so she came from some uh, specific background where uh, her makers decided to to give her autonomy right away, which is pretty unusual. Right. So you have sort of like two people that are that are against type: the 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 human that's treated like a robot and the robot that's treated like a human. Right. Right. That's Medea Cohen, right? The uh, yes. Yeah. I, I just like all these names. That's why I keep saying them. Um, I don't think I gave her names. That's yeah. Good to get that. In. So yeah, three Z and Medea Cohen. Yeah. So uh, that's right. She teams up with them and uh, kind of seeks refuge among some various uh, like ex-lovers of hers that are scattered around the world. So we get kind of her backstory of how she got into piracy and how all of her various romances fell apart while she's um, traipsing around the world trying to put together this this um, dossier of information about this drug and get it out uh, um as well as uh, find a cure. Uh, and meanwhile, um, our villains, like you were saying, are uh, pursuing her. So the ones that we're close to are Paladin and Elias, who are the uh, commando and his bot. That's um, actually the bot in the commando. Sorry. Um, and uh, they are tracking them down and killing everybody that she has talked to sort of in their, in, in, sort of spreading uh, disaster in, uh, in her wake. Right? That's sort of how I describe yeah, it. Yeah, well, that's the B plot. The B plot is actually about her pursuers. Right. Um, who work for the Intellectual Property Coalition. As you said, it's a bot and his master, or her master. Um, right, which is, depending uh, on and, where, where you are in the story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, we sort of are meant to identify with these, these IPC workers that are, that are hunting her uh, because they're, they're given, you know, a lot of viewpoint in the story. 
but of course they're doing terrible things. I mean, first of all, like like yes. this was what's so dystopian about this world is that the IPC seems to just murder indiscriminately in pursuit of like uh, you know protecting uh, this company's like you know patents. <laughs> so uh, that's what's I think very troubling about this future in particular. Right, uh, um, patent pirates are basically treated like terrorists today, and they're just hunted down and killed, and nobody thinks anything of it. And you do kind of get close to these two workers, but that's because they never think about what they're doing, really. Like, they never think about patents, and they never think about... They very very rarely even think about their enemies or, like, whether their enemies are dangerous or anything. They're, like, that's so far from their minds. They're mostly just focused on each other and their um, their relationships and stuff. And so you're able to kind of get a bit close to them, but as you say, when you step back, you realize, oh, I, I don't want them to succeed at all. <laughs> right. Well, and, and that gets to what I think is, is where the book shines, like my favorite thread, right? Mm-hmm. Which is the viewpoint of Paladin, the robot. Yes. Uh, who, again, it makes sense that he doesn't question this because he's been designed as an artificial person with certain preferences that he has or she has no knowledge of or access to at the beginning of the story. Yeah. Um, you know, things that make it feel good to do what your master tells you and to serve your master, for example. Um, and so, you know, if that's the sort of preferences that are hard-coded into you, then maybe you don't have free will with regards to those things. And that, of course, is like one of the major things that's being explored here. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the way that character is handled... Um, in a way, like if if you told me on paper, like this is a book that has these two storylines. One is about like this cool like drug pirate, and and one is about this sort of robot like you know, like l- learning to love or something. I would probably think that the first one would be the interesting one, and the second one would be the cliche one. But actually, um, I felt quite the opposite when reading it. I thought like for even though this is sort of a tried and true story of like a robot that you know sort of doesn't fully understand its motivations like learning learning to be more of a person um i actually thought the way it was portrayed was 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 uniquely done and good i don't know if you felt the same way yeah i agree with that i found that to be the more compelling part of the book and um i also agree that i'm not sure i would have guessed that from a pitch i think uh part of it is just the specificity that she gives uh paladin Part of it is the, I think, uncritical way that Paladin deals with uh, Elias because part of Paladin's main growth is that uh, this commando who is um, in charge of of Paladin uh, basically falls in love with it, is sexually attracted to it at first and has like issues with that. And then over the course of the book basically falls in love with it. Uh, we keep switching up its... Uh, pronouns so maybe we should talk about that part uh it turns out that paladin has a human organ uh, incorporated into its design right it's a brain and it um is kind of cleverly used for facial recognition um within the system right off the bat i thought that was strange this robot has a brain in it and not not in the head i think it's like in the chest or something right yeah i I guess the company put the brain in there as a as a matter of strategy, right? To sort of mislead people because apparently everybody assumes, as you would assume, that, oh, the brain is acting as a brain, right? Because that seems like a powerful combination. You put an actual human brain inside of a super mech, basically, and that's a thing you've seen in sci-fi before that's going to be sure. pretty effective. Sure. Um, but actually, like the brain is relegated to just doing this facial recognition task, which we'll get into in a sec because I think that's also super weird. Um, but uh, because the marketing makes people that encounter this robot on the battlefield think that like the brain is where its power is, everybody aims for like where the brain compartment is, right? And, which is just a decoy because it's that's not where its actual brain is, right? Um, and and again, the brain is just processing faces. Now, I get that human brains are good at face recognition. I also get that we have, you know, primitive face recognition that computers can do today. Right. So it, it doesn't seem so like it's there's not clear really... that they really need it. Right. But maybe yeah. it makes sense as a pure decoy thing. And the most interesting thing about this premise to me, the brain premise was the confusion that the robot itself has throughout most of the story about whether the brain matters, which is, I think a very interesting idea. It's sort of like, 
you know, thinking about whether your appendix matters or something. And then there is a resolution to that uh, late in the story. The brain comes from a human being and the human being that donated the brain had a gender, right? And so what we discover later in the story is um, after Elisha's already had like this sort of complicated reaction to being attracted to Paladin and not knowing what to do with those feelings and having addressed Paladin as a man because Paladin is a combat robot and just seems sort of masculine or something to him. Uh, then he finds out that the donor brain actually was female and this switches off like a switch in Elias's head where all of a sudden this relationship that he was very worried made him abnormal before he's no longer worried about it. Now I think this is super cool because I found this to be very realistic. Like I can understand psychologically how someone who has internalized a lot of homophobia and uh, you know, um, grown up in a military environment uh, would feel that way and would welcome the chance to validate their feelings like that. Um, some of the people who reviewed this book online, I think were, were annoyed that, uh, that he doesn't have a more, you know, perfect um, and understanding a nuanced view of gender. But I, I, I actually, this is my favorite part of the book because it was a part where um, it really felt like a real human response where like his desires were in conflict with how he thought of himself. And then he found a way to somehow have what he desired and also define himself how he wanted. And he just gloms straight onto that. That felt very real to me actually. Well, and I also like how Paladin responds, which is that right. Paladin, the robot has no gender. Paladin, the robot doesn't care about gender. Paladin, the robot, this, none of this makes any sense. So from Paladin's perspective, his human lover is essentially totally irrational. Right? In, right, in caring and, and is anthropomorphizing him um, or her, and so Paladin just you know starts out as a he and then fully accepts becoming a she because it really makes no difference. But what I like again is that Paladin's, while still falling in love with her master, uh, also has this sort of detached view that her master is kind of irrational, <laughs> um, but doesn't you know feel the need to to correct or change like the fact that her master's view on this is a little bit uh, strange and anthropomorphizing. Yes. Uh, yeah. It's really refreshing to have a robot who is not delusional about, you know, the difference between being happy and being uh, correct or rational, you know, like that's, that's nice that that's not assumed to be a that's true. That robots the have to have in this book. Yeah. The classic, like like cheesy, like sci-fi, like I am a robot. I must do the logical thing <laughs> yeah. would be like, like, but would, would constantly correct their lover. It would constantly be like, but you know that I am neither a he or a she. <laughs> right. Instead, this is like a much more humanized, like, you know, in order for like a relationship to proceed, you know, there's certain things maybe we'll just set aside and not talk well, about. It's like Paladin is literally like reading the skin response of like Elias's skin and being like, you know, what, what movement can I make to, adjust him in a more happy direction. He like Paladin is almost is this guilelessly manipulative in a way, right? Like has no ulterior motive, just wants to manipulate Elias to be happy, <laughs> but, but also is fully capable of and morally fine with ma manipulating him in any way, which it, it like, it doesn't ever cross a uh, Paladin's mind that that's not something it should do. So I think that's super interesting and, and smart, which kind of brings up another, key issue here, which is that this initially th this like desire to please uh, her master is outside of Paladin's control. Uh, this is like sort of an implanted right. preference. And there's a moment in the book where Paladin gets uh, her autonomy key, which sort of gives her higher level access to her code to kind of see the sort of implanted programs that are running inside her and then reflect on them at a higher level. Yeah. And sort of, you know, have I guess the option to reject them at that point or uninstall them, um, but instead sort of chooses to sort of embrace, like in a more active fashion. I mean, we could sort of argue about the the free will implications here, which are pretty fraught. But um, I thought that was like a really the way that's dramatized from a first person point of view is 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 pretty interesting. Um, e even though this is like broad strokes a story we've seen before, it's really well told here. Should we? I mean, let's just talk about the fact that this is another story 
um, that's about 100 years in the future. Yeah. Um, about 50 years after they started having serious robots, if we uh, take that little history that's given in the book seriously. Right. Um, and they're just sort of like walking around like humanoids uh, at human level. They're not exceeding human level. Um, it's unclear like what the economies of scale are, but apparently they're still indenturing them for 10 years to pay for the cost of them. Um, I, and there's not any kind of population explosion as a result of artificial beings. Um, it's one of these sort of like, it's a pretty static equilibrium, it feels like, for robots. Do you see what I'm getting at here? Yeah. Well, my most charitable read on that is it seems like a world that maybe it, it's never explicitly stated that there was any catastrophes or anything, but it does seem like a world that's gone through some changes due to climate stuff. And maybe uh, we're seeing a situation where, like, progress continued but was somewhat retarded by the reorganizing of society that ended up with all these consolidated zones and uh, paramilitary uh, dystopian patent police and the whole thing well sure and, and i'm not trying to necessarily be out the great get out the gate critical of that i'm just saying that like this is in that traditional mode yeah. of robots just walk among us like people and they've been doing so for maybe 50 years now and there's no sign of that changing and I do think like modern sci-fi usually feels compelled to address that being the case now that we you know have so much talk of singularity and intelligence explosion and um, economies of scale and uh, completely digital beings that maybe don't have bodies that are could be you know infinitely copied and uh, you know again there, there's so many ways um, for this equilibrium to not be maintained. Um, you know, ranging from the sort of like, you know, Robin Hansen, you know, emulated minds version where you have purely software beings that you can copy many, many times. And so inevitably their population would tend to explode um, to the sort of like Kurzweil, like, you know, intelligence explosion version um, where they just get smarter and smarter and smarter um, as opposed to just staying at roughly human level, which is where these seem to stay. Um, at the very least, you'd expect the cost to go down on them or to be changing or more fluid. Um, but again, it's also sort of hard to know where this lands on this trajectory. But yeah, this is not a story that's concerned with um, these like bigger themes of technological progress. Uh, it, right. it feels like a much more incrementalist sort of view of the future and how things are going to go. And I think that's totally fine. I just wanted to point that out. And right. there's like it, nowhere in the book does it feel the need to kind of like explain away any of these issues. Um, but I, I, I don't know. How plausible do you find that uh, these days? Well, I mean, usually I'm for sci-fi. I'm willing to like go with whatever the assumption is there as long as it's internally consistent. And I didn't find too many places where I was like, oh, if there's progress in this, how could there not be progress in that or something? There was a few things up front where like, you know, there's um, uh, there's all these tiny projectors everywhere that are like projecting screens for everybody so that they can do regular computer stuff without computers. And that was like sort of a really interesting idea that then didn't have any real consequence in the world like you know, those same screens weren't also surveillance devices, for example, that could spy on them to go back to IPC or something like that. I could see something like that maybe happening. But for the most part, I think you're right. It seems like this is a sort of stagnated world where it comes to computer tech. Expl exactly why that is is never explained. It does seem like it's better than what we have today, but still like along a, a lot of the same kind of quarters or like it doesn't seem like it's had a big paradigm shift in a while. And, uh, and of course biotech is sort of where it's at in this world. So maybe the author just wanted to focus on, um, that to the exclusion of what was going on in, in computing. But, um, Although making a robot a major character seems to foreground computing quite a bit. Well, and the ro but the robot's weird because it also has this biotech component where it incorporates human brains, as we mentioned, for something that I, I'm not sure you actually need human brains for, so who knows what she's trying to say there. Um, yeah, obviously there there is advanced computing technology in this world, 
but for 130 years from now or whatever it is, um, it didn't feel like exactly the right mix of tech. You know, it felt like biotech was maybe actually behind uh, because why weren't there like desktop drug printers? Why weren't people getting personalized medicine? Why? Wait, there sort of were some, there was print like drug printing and 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 well, various like fabrication they had the, but they had happen. to go to like a special facility for that right that wasn't like something that somebody had that was medea cohen had access to that right because of her because she works at some hospital or something yeah I, i'm not sure but i know like uh now our main character would have special facilities on her submarine but she had stuff like i don't know how widespread it seemed like it was like high was. industrial tech to me not like something everyone has at home that. It felt to me like more like mid rangey, like Maybe. you could get together. Like it sound seemed like like there is a plot line um, where in her early days of of being a sort of like pirate, she sets up like a radical, you know, alternate, you know, genetics lab or whatever, right? Or biotech lab, um, and, and you know they get I guess grants or donations to like fund their their equipment, right? But it seems like they're sort of able to coddle that together. Right, right. I, mean, I guess it I, feels I, a little bit like 3D printers today. So yeah, maybe you're right. Like more like mid-range, high-end hobbyist, low-end industrial kind of space. Uh, meanwhile, the computing tech um, felt very behind to me. I mean, it, it seems like if they really have human-level AIs that can become autonomous with just a being given a program key like Paladin and those... Which is super advanced right. to have that. And those are like obviously the ones that are embodied in really expensive military hardware. They've got to have, you know, um, AIs that are out there on the network that are super capable. Um, and I didn't really see a lot of evidence of that in this world. Um, so again, maybe it's just outside of the scope of what she's doing. Everything is pretty close on the mainish characters, but um, it, it did feel like to me. I, I I felt like the date felt like it was maybe chosen for to be like to feel far enough in the future, but not too far. Um, but to me, it it seemed like a very linear uh, future from now. If that really is the date, you know then like it would almost seem like linear progress from today on is kind of the assumption um, that's being made. Sure. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's right. The world is very like connected. Um, surveillance is very powerful in this world. Mm -hmm. um, makes it very hard to hide from the IPC or so you would think, although it seems that, you know, Jack as a pirate seems to have a lot of tricks up her sleeve for for avoiding that surveillance. So, right. um, yes, it empowers um, uh, the, these corporations and this co this IPC coalition, uh, but it is seemingly avoidable. So the world feel, but the world does feel like very networked, right? And like there's a sort of an Internet of Things implication where like the uh, the robot can kind of like talk to the sprinkler system in the building they're in and so on. Yeah. Um, where like a lot of things are on the network and sort of like you can pull a lot of information out of the air wherever you are. Mm -hmm. um, so that felt right. But yeah, there's not a lot of intelligence floating in that network like you would think there would be. Like there's like there's not the combination of that highly networked world with the like like sentient like human level intelligence. Do you, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and, and I'm not sure exactly what that would look like even. So I'm not sure like how you would have to change the story, but yeah, it, it did. That didn't feel like, like you said, maybe like as advanced as, as the world sort of implied it would be. But again, I mean, this is not, I think this is more of a thematic book at the end of the day than a speculative book. Although I would still give it a pretty high speculative score relative to most sci-fi. Um, yeah, but I think that's right. This, you know what this book reminds me of most of anything else actually is of Cory Doctorow. Sure. You know, uh, because the politics are great. The, well, he also has an EFF background. Yep. The concepts are pretty solid. There's a lot of like pretty, pretty solid, interesting thought through consequences of A or B technology, uh, as we've been kind of going through, uh, there, you know, the writing style is like functional. I didn't, I wouldn't say I loved the writing style, but it usually didn't bother me. Um, 
but there is like a sense sometimes when I'm reading it that it is, I don't know, paper dolls. And I feel this way with a lot of doctor's work too. Like sometimes it just doesn't quite come together uh, to, to, to be more than, than all of its ideas. Yeah. I, I mean, I, for me, I, I, on more of a surface level, I would just say that like the B plot with, uh, I, I mean, it's not even fair to call it the B plot, but like, yeah, the, it's the, 50% the, of the story, but yeah, the, the, the second plot with Paladin was just a lot more engaging to me than the plot with Jack. Um, so like on its own, I might've liked the, the plot with Jack more, but like next to this other story that I was much more engaged with, like it sort of like was a little worse for the comparison. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that left me, uh, also I got more into the book the more I understood the world. So actually the fact that that stuff was held back until pretty late, um, it meant that I ended the book in a good place, like feeling more positively than when I started it, but it made like the beginning a little slow for me. Um, yeah, I agree with that. I was, I also had a harder time getting into it until I was about, until really the Paladin story picks up. Then once that gets interesting, then that was enough to, uh, to carry me through. And the rest of it all made sense and was logical. And I understood the points he was making. I wouldn't say that I was super satisfying though. I mean, I think ultimately you don't end up caring that much about Jack and Jack's past. Um, you know, Is it, so are you trying to say like that you felt the author's hand in the sense that like you thought maybe she was trying to make specific thematic points? Um, yeah. With the choices. Yeah. In sometimes, like too obvious a way. Yeah. Sometimes the choices almost feel like, they are taken from a spreadsheet of political goals or something. And I want to, again, uh, uh, reiterate that I, these are political goals that I share. So I have a certain sympathy with with that kind of choice getting made. But um, And I felt the same way when I read Little Brother by Cory Doctorow or uh, uh, Down Out in the Magic Kingdom uh, by him uh, as well. Like, there are certain things where I'm like, okay, you wanted to talk about this, you know? And like, look, I, I think patents are bad. You know, I think uh, a lot of this, I agree with a lot of this stuff, but there were some times when I was like, all right, but I think something more, you know, emotionally engaging here might've been more nuanced and messy about the topic. And, you know, the author didn't choose that, you know. You know, it would be my simple, like, the thing I would try okay. if, if, if the book was being rewritten, because mm-hmm. it seems, it, it is, I would make uh, 3Z the main character of that plot line. Yeah, because like because three Z is a more compelling yeah. protagonist and is and is present in ninety percent of the scenes anyways, um, and you could so you could tell basically the same storyline. Yeah, but I think like because like three Z's life is so off. Well, in a way too, it's like maybe it's too neatly symmetrical, but it is more symmetrical to have like the indentured robot as one plot line and like the indentured human as the other plot line. Right. Um, I mean, there's a nice symmetry to that or a cheesy symmetry to that, depending on how you look at it. But um, mm-hmm. I think that might have, I think I might have liked that better because I did, I did like, I did care more about, about him for whatever reason. Yeah. Well, I mean, some, some of that's just due to pathos because his story is so terrible, but also I think that character is well drawn because um, she shows his psychological damage, I think in a, in a, in a believable way, uh, which is that he, uh, is a user and uh, kind of doesn't care for shit about anyone, which is a total defense mechanism and feels right for that character. You know, uh, feels like she's not just um, pitying him, but she's really kind of getting into his head. I agree with that. Actually, I hadn't thought of that, but I think um, uh, if Jack was more like the, the gruff pirate who saved him, you know, kind of that character. Uh, right. And he was the main character in that a plot line. I think that might be uh a better story. Um, although I have to say as like a, a criticism of the speculation and it, I did go with this when I read it. So I don't think it's a deal breaker. I, it's all explained well enough and it all logically follows that like the Supreme court might draw this equivalence and might say, well, I guess since we've already decided to enslave robots, we'll enslave humans too. But <laughs> I find that unlikely from this timeline. Does that make sense? Like, I find that unlikely, not as a conceit in a sci-fi thing, full stop, but as a future for our world, for this current yes. world. Like, I, I, this is like, I feel the same way about like Handmaid's Tale. Like, I think Handmaid's Tale is a totally plausible dystopia as long as their history isn't our history. When they go in Handmaid's Tale and try to make it 
oh, two years ago it was just regular America. Then I'm like, no, like that would we can't make that radical a change in two years. Uh, half the people will be out in the streets. It doesn't matter what the change is, right? I mean, this isn't about specifically how we treat women or specifically how we treat robots or anything like that. Certainly, we're capable of doing all those things poorly. But um, I just don't buy like super radical change like that uh, from our world, given that we've already had such a horrible history with slavery and indentures. Even if the Supreme Court said tomorrow, well, slavery has to be legal, like I think people would change the Constitution. They would, the culture would just not accept that, I don't think. Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought that up again, because, yeah, I completely agree. Um, it's hard to see how we get from here to there. I'm not saying it's impossible. In, I mean, it's plenty. It is a lot of time. It's 100 years and a lot of change to get there. Um, but the fact that it just sort of hinges on the courts just trying to be consistent <laughs> on this like one issue dealing with robots uh, and like that's all it takes to get us there. I mean, I feel like we would need a, a bigger battle to essentially bring back slavery yeah. uh, in, in what is called the free trade zone, which is essentially the West here. Uh, like, I, I, Right. And some timeline where we didn't have American slavery, I buy it, you know, in some timeline when like, a big world power hadn't already had a really bad experience where it instituted a policy like this, I'd feel differently. Uh, Cause certainly humans are capable of enslaving one another. Right. Of course that's true. But I just find it hard to believe from like if the 20th century happened the same way, or it's like, you know, the last 400, 500 years happened the same way in that timeline that they happened here in this timeline, then I don't know. That's, it seems like, look, you got three options. If you make, robots that are slaves and it goes to the supreme court you got three options right either you say well it's okay because they're robots they're not people or you say uh well let's enslave people too which is what they went with right or you say uh well we can't enslave anyone right those are basically your three options and i find it much 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 more plausible that we just continue to arbitrarily define robots some way, even if that like really hurts cyborgs or something and enslave the robots and don't enslave the people. Right. I mean, yeah, the, the, that the does first not option seem, seems like the go-to that yeah. does not seem culturally hard. You know what I mean? Like I'm not saying it's morally right or anything like that. I'm just saying like culturally, you think the culture is going to have a big problem saying that some things are robots and those are okay to enslave and everybody else is, you know, is human and has rights. I, I just think that's going to be pretty easy. <laughs> um, and so that was maybe my one biggest like niggle as far as the speculation goes. And I think all the consequences are fine once you buy that. So it didn't um, destroy my enjoyment of it, but I, I do feel like that was a little bit too far uh, for, for plausibility. Well, and I should say that there's plenty of other ways to like functionally create an underclass uh, that aren't. I mean, I, oh, again, yeah. they didn't. They Which don't they use the term do. slavery. They use the term indenture. But I mean, again, it still functions like someone owns someone else. So I still think it would trigger those social norms. But yeah, I mean, certainly just with standard like debt um, or like other like you know ways that society can be set up. Actually, I was just reminded now that another feature of this world is that you have to apparently have a purchased a franchise in a zone to work there. Yeah. Did you catch that? Um, so like that's certainly a, another way of creating an underclass. Like if you don't can't afford to buy a franchise, then you can't afford to like work legally. And essentially you're, I guess, like right. if you work, you're like an illegal immigrant today, essentially, or an undocumented worker and that's a type of underclass. I mean, there's all kinds of ways to have like this social stratification, yeah. but the notion that it's going to function like slavery exactly. And use words um, that are associated negatively yeah. with slavery like indenture. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's a little hard to swallow. Um, I, I had forgotten about the franchise thing. So I, I don't think it's ever explicitly said, but that word seems to imply that that's also your right to vote that you're buying. Right. Uh, well, franchise often means that. So I don't, maybe it just means you're a, a, like a sort of a... Kind of like, like buying citizenship. In full a, citizen with rights and maybe otherwise you don't have that. I'm not totally clear. Uh, I don't know if it's explained, but that there's something to that system that I think would, it, you know, would, it, would in a way achieve a lot of the same sort of problems and social issues around, you know, like having some people 
be like slaves, but not literally be owned. Right, right, right. Um, and I think thematically, the book wants to contrast human and robotic servitude, right? And because uh, it's called autonomous. And see, the contrast that I would have rather seen, right? And again, I'm sort of building this around Paladin because Paladin is my favorite character here. Mm-hmm. So, so Paladin's autonomy is, you know, in question because Paladin was designed with all these preferences, and Paladin can not all Paladin's memories are even under Paladin's control, and and you know, other people have the key to rewrite or delete those memories and so on. So, so Paladin is in many ways not autonomous. Right. But so many of those issues that apply to Paladin just apply to all beings, right? Um, in a much, in a like, maybe not as explicit a sense, right? But you or I, are, we're all, you know, I mean, this is essentially the classic questions of free will. I mean, we are all, you know, in some senses, like, born with preferences that were not chosen by us. Like, maybe they were chosen by some messy biological, like, process, right? right. Um, and, and, you know, and, and I think there's, like, a... And then like we're programmed more, by people who raise us and... Such. Yeah, and the way we're educated, right, right it plays a role. Um, in some senses, like maybe we are designed by the culture we live in, in the way that a robot is designed. I mean, there's like a lot of thematic territory there. Yeah. And I, did you feel like that was explored? I'm not actually sure that it is. No. Instead, it's this much more literal indenture. Thing. Yes. Yeah. yeah. No. It's. I mean, things like the design of robots is like very background in this. You know, I mean, it's a military robot. It's designed to kill. It effectively kills throughout whether it's in love or not, you know, that has nothing to do with whether it's killing, you know, um, which is, I think there's a realism to that that I like, but it's not, um, thematically the book doesn't actually seem interested in that. And, uh, I agree. I think there's, there's room to explore there that it didn't really get to. I mean, that is an interesting question in and of its own. And it's something that, uh, recently like, uh, you know, our, uh, occasional guest, not for a long time though, John Danaher has written about, um, which is this like issue of like, is it ethical to like design a person for specific, you know, ends, right? Right. Or it, like, like, is it, you know, I think the, the, the like sort of example he writes about is like, is it okay to uh, design a ironing robot to do your ironing for you because you don't want to do it, right? But the, the robot, much like the people taking the Zacuity drug, maybe that's the connection here, like, you know, gets basically like an intense high from doing the job of ironing, right? So from the robot's perspective, right. they're like, they have this preference, they're fulfilling their preference, it makes them feel good. Um, so but so is that is that ethical to sort of design a being with a goal in mind? And you're not designing it like to suffer, you're designing it to feel good, but you're designing it in this way that makes it sort of fundamentally inferior to you. Um like, is that even something that should be allowed? Right, right, right. Well, and I think the book makes its thematic argument by having 3Z be this, you know, child who was basically raised to be a hooker, right? And, and uh, you know, is psychologically damaged to the point where he does get um, enjoyment from uh, seducing people and stuff, but that... Uh, it's um you i think the book is trying to marshal the inherent ickiness you feel about prostitution and stuff and throw it at these other thematic questions isn't it it's trying to say like well you wouldn't be okay with it if you raise kids from birth to be prostitutes right that's something you're not okay with i think probably most people are nodding their heads and then you know it says well how different is that from this in a way by by um putting them right next to each other you know uh, from from creating a robot to be a killing machine in in the specific case of this book, I think it's pretty easy to describe that the way that Paladin is treated in this book uh, is probably unethical. Um, now you can come up with other situations. Maybe we can talk about this in another podcast where it's a little bit more confusing if you make like a robot or not for a certain job, if it's actually ethical or not. Um, but I think in this case of Paladin, where you make sort of a military robot that you like you know <laughs> send around the world to like hunt down and kill pirates i mean there's there's so many problems already <laughs> that it's almost like you don't even need to get to the the larger question oh can i bring up one other thing i i did read the internet a little bit about uh what other people are saying about this book and i found something on goodreads that i thought was worth bringing up this is a uh a, a sort of 
a niggle about the uh, the way the patents work in this world that I didn't put my finger on when I was reading it, but there was something about it that I was like giving me a weird feeling. And I, uh, when I saw this, I was like, oh, I think maybe this was it. Someone on Goodreads pointed out this is a person who works in patent law, and uh, they say that the their argument is the patent system that's in the book is is quite different from today's patent system because uh, the ostensible purpose of today's patent system is, you know, you give them the short-term monopoly um, uh, on the invention, but you also, in order to get that monopoly, they have to show their plans on how to make the drug to the government, and it goes into a public record. So the world gets the information for how to do it in exchange for that monopoly. Eventually that monopoly runs out and people can make the drug generically, right? That's the way patents work now. That's why we're willing to do them. I mean, you can argue whether they're a good idea or not, but that's how they work. And in the in the world of the book, it, it, it appears that um, essentially they can keep the drug secret. Uh, right, because there's reverse engineering. Exactly. Happening. So... Um, so they can, they just get this monopoly. It lasts for basically ever. It's like, you know, it's like she's analogizing it to the Mickey Mouse, uh, you know, copyright or something. That part of IP law, which is, which is um, worse. <laughs> it's even worse than, than patent law. Uh, you know, so it's like it lasts forever. Anybody who even figures out how to make a genetic, uh, generic version is, is, is breaking the law in this world. That's against the rules. So that... Uh, like this commenter says, legalizes secrecy um, and allows right. allows the drug manufacturer to do what they do in the book, which is illegally make a drug that actually uh, makes people sick and just lie about it. And it's fine because nothing happens to them because, although you know, unlike today's world, there is no disclosure in this world. So I think that's a really interesting point just to bring up, not that she should have done it a different way, but just to bring up that... Um, you know, in this future where the companies are even more powerful, they have changed the system from our system to make it even more uh, beneficial to them and even worse for the world. And that's not really specifically addressed in the book. Although I, I, it is consistent with the general vibe that yeah. intellectual property law has been onerously expanded, expanded. in this yeah, world. Yeah. Yeah. So it would make, you can kind of fill in the gaps there and figure, oh yeah, at some point they got that part changed. <laughs> oh yeah, that, absolutely. Yeah. I just think the the point this commenter's, making is just that it's different from things how things yes. are today yeah and i hadn't thought about that i, I didn't want to like you know i don't want to like defend the patent system i think it's a, a disaster but uh i i think it is important to note that this is like a worse version of the patent system <laughs> that that is being depicted there's one last thing that literally just occurred to me all right let's let's end uh which is uh because i was thinking about you know designed people and the ethics of that a second ago and then, of course, uh, we did our podcast uh, a while ago on designer babies. Right. Um, and, of course, this is a world of relatively advanced biotech, it seems. And you mentioned that there's not, like, genetically targeted drugs, right? But there's also... I didn't remember not, seeing any, yeah. Not, like, are there genetically engineered people, right? I mean, like, that seems to me like a natural, also thematic complement to the the sort of programmed robots is that you would have people that were programmed from birth via, you know, genetic selection of some kind, but that's pretty much not mentioned, right? Yeah, I, mean, I don't remember that coming up, and I'm thinking as you're saying it, that would be a really good thing to apply specifically to 3Z, because in a way, that's more analogous than the sort of school for indentures or whatever, as far as, you know, taking away his autonomy by genetically engineering him to be whatever, promiscuous or whatever it is they want. Well, and it just stands to reason, you have to infer a lot about, you know, what they can and can't do technologically, you know, because there's a lot of that description is like sort of hard to, to parse, right? And, and a lot of it's sort of impressionistic, but like, um, they seem to have pretty advanced biotech. I would assume that would include, uh, you know, some, some pretty strong genetic engineering that could be done of people. Now, I mean, whether that's allowed is a question, but it seems like it, the fact that that's not addressed is at all does seem a little odd. <laughs> In fact, but I, I just thought of that now. So yeah, I rolled with it when I was reading it, but I agree. All right, well, maybe we should end with uh, just like sort of bottom line. Sure. Do you recommend this book or not? Or who do you recommend it for? Yeah, so I would recommend this book with caveats to people who uh, like listen to this podcast and are interested in these kind of ideas and are willing to 
uh, slog through something that can be a little slow at times and a little cold in general uh, to get to something that has some genuinely interesting things to think about. It wasn't my favorite book, but uh, and it wasn't the most satisfying book that I've read in, in a while, but uh, there were a few moments where I, I was uh, delighted, and uh, I think it is an interesting read. Uh, I definitely don't think it's a read for like your grandmother or like someone who is not already interested in these topics because it's not the most accessible thing in the world. I mean, I'm going to go ahead and like, if, if, if I just had to give it an up or down vote, I'd give it an up vote. I'd recommend it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's a good book. I think it's way better than your average sci-fi. I agree with that. Um, I would definitely read the next thing she writes. Um, but yeah, I mean, I had my little criticisms, which I've already said, so I won't repeat them. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to be doing more reviews like this. Um, and so, you know, we're going to try to give you a heads up uh, when we can. Uh, you might want to check our, our Twitter feed, I guess, occasionally. We'll probably post there to let you know, like, things that we might be reviewing soon in case you want to read and or watch those things. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, also, if you'd like to suggest something for us to review, uh, send us an email and let us know if it's a book or a television show or a comic book or something like that. We can try to uh, do it this uh, in the next few months. And I think, you know, anything sci-fi that has, like, interesting themes, um, but especially stuff if it's got, you know, some grounding in speculation, uh, uh, meaning, like, it's a little bit within the realm of plausibility, you know, as opposed to more of, like, the fantasy-oriented sci-fi. But, hey, even that could be, could be interesting thematically, so we're open to anything that you want to suggest. Okay, so next time we are going to be reviewing an episode of Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams. This is an Amazon original show. You can watch it on Amazon or on a couple of other places online. And we're specifically going to be talking about this episode called Crazy Diamond. It's the one with uh, Steve Buscemi. So if you haven't seen that and you want to be in the loop, you can watch it before next time. And we will talk about it then. Until next time. I'm Ted Cupper. I'm John Perry. And you've been listening to Review the Future. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening.